Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a double homicide that occurred in 2016. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Do you guys know why Black Long is known as Black Long? No. What's your dad go away for? They came over to Seattle to kill a white guy. The FBI is calling it the Tran and Vu Drug Trafficking Organization, and tonight it's been busted. 10, 20, 30 pounds of cocaine, meth, heroin. It was a lot. These guys were like the Sopranos for the Vietnamese. Now I'm regretting not being more critical at the time. This is episode four, Fat Serves Fat. I'm your host, David Payne. people were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless Deadly shooting in the jungle may be connected to a drug debt. Three teenage brothers were arrested and these 17, 16 and the youngest just 13 years old. Today's November 2nd. Hello, November 2nd. Just want to make sure my levels are okay. Do you want the window closed? Yeah, that would be helpful if you wouldn't mind. These are amazing. It's incredible. It's another gloomy winter day in Seattle, and we're sitting at a small table in Tracy Bauer's rent-assisted apartment. She's out at the jungle now, struggling to survive her addictions and to make ends meet with a fledgling jewelry business. Tracy, you need to be selling these things. Seriously. You have Did you make that? Mm-hmm. She made all yeah. three of them, four of them. Yeah, I sold five of them so far. How much do you sell them for? $20. Do you really? That's crazy. You think it's too much? Or... No, I think it's they're amazing. Not at all. And everything is challenging when you're stuck in the cycle she's in. Do you have an ID? Yeah. You I mean, I just lost it because someone stole my purse, but I'm getting it. I've got my ID. i got a voucher. For it. And while she's now out of the jungle... She's still not safe, and the stress of her current circumstances is killing her. You have an autoimmune disease and, you know, some health issues. How do you stay healthy? No, I don't. (laughs) I'm fighting with Crohn's disease and kidney failure, high blood pressure. I've had two strokes and a heart attack and anxiety and depression. Have you struggled with things? But before it was the stress that was killing her. It was a series of bad decisions and bad luck that put her in the wake of Black Long Trong and the Tran DTO. After that six-week period of death, Tracy was a literal wreck. So uh, a friend of mine took me off the reservation because he didn't want me getting too much into the black because I was starting to use a little bit of the black. He brought me to Seattle for something new and get away from all the death. You know, to find my husband dead in bed and then my son. So your friend brought you over to Seattle. How did you end up in the caves, living in the caves? Well, I originally was staying with him and um, got a job at the IHOP in Capitol Hill, and I got a job there waitressing. And um, 
Working the night shift at IHOP kept her busy, but wasn't enough to pull her away from the bad influences in her life. This time, the boyfriend who took her to Seattle to get away. He was sending me across the street, you know, get coke from out of the jungle because we seen a couple of these two people. I saw them coming out of the jungle, walking all crooked and crazy. And I'm like, they have got some really strong dope in there because they don't do that coming out of the native park. So he's like, well, I can't go in there. I'm the head savage. You go in. So I went in and got it. And they were looking at me in my IHOP uniform like I was a cop. And after that, I just started spending every day's tips there. And now Tracy had yet another demon to grapple with. A new boyfriend who took his frustrations out on her. He'd gotten into some trouble driving and drinking and went to jail. And he had gotten out and um, it was really ugly and got physical. And he beat me up really bad. It was really bad. He accused me of being with one of the guys because I was late and coming back. But really, you could see off our balcony, you could see me sitting there waiting for the dope to come in. So um, when I, they saw how badly I was beat up, they said, you're not going back there. You're staying here. The here where she was staying was the northern end of the jungle in a tent off the Yesler Street sidewalk, smack in the heart of Black Long's territory. And the they who was telling her she wasn't going back to that abusive boyfriend was Black Long's girlfriend, Margie Pitka. She's actually one of the ones that brought me over there to them. She'd sit outside my stairs at the apartment when I'd be getting off work and always ask me for a couple bucks for a beer. She was kind of silly, crazy. She always say peekaboo, and um, I'd go over with her and get her a little bit of coke, and then I'd go home, and she'd look for me every day. And if ever there was a proper metaphor for slipping ever so slowly into the quicksand of a life of crime and homelessness, it was in the fact that Bauer's first move into the jungle was living in a tent a mere 50 yards from her apartment front door. No, it was across the street on, on Yesler because we lived in the Yesler Terrace Apartments and that's where Long Camp was. The guy I was with, his apartment was right there. I mean, right there. And they were looking for me. So when he you never, left, He didn't find me. I, I was, was there like say, five months. He never found me. I mean, right there. If Tracy's life to this point could be characterized as a series of horrific missteps, then the next four years would be a giant leap. This one's straight off a cliff. Her use and dependency on drugs accelerated, and with that came a voracious need to make money to pay for them. In the worst type of Faustian bargain, Tracy would begin selling drugs out of her tent for a dealer and her soon-to-be next boyfriend, a guy who went by the name of Asian Mike. There were two problems. She was so good at it that she began cutting into Black Long's business. And she would be forced to stay in the tent all day to protect the stash. Her only companion was Black Long's girlfriend, Margie Pitka. When I got with Mike, she'd come over and visit me at the camp there, and I wasn't allowed out of the tent. I stayed in the tent, and I'd have little holes in the tent, and she'd sit outside on the other side, and we'd talk through my hole or, you know, visit. She'd always sit down and say, peekaboo. Why didn't they let you out of the tent? Uh, safety reasons and didn't want to be seen. There's a tent with a bunch of tarps over it. They can't see who's selling. And M- Mike would work out of an apartment building, um, the Jefferson Terrace. And then I stayed in the, the tent and I had a couple door guys. And, um, also... and while Long's girlfriend Margie may have been all friendly about this arrangement, Black Long was having none of it. 
And then first I was only there a couple months. And then um, Long actually sent me out of the jungle. He kicked me out and he kicked Asian Mike out. Long's decision to shoo away Asian Mike and Tracy was another major domino in the sequence of events leading to the jungle murders. He kicked me out and he kicked Asian Mike out. And we ended up getting together there at the Harborview site there on Yesler and started up a tent. And we ended up being number one. And Long ended up having to come over and buy from us and sell hawk stuff to us. American competition in its rawest form. Long had awoken a dragon. But just as Bauer was beginning to cut her teeth as a dealer, tragedy would strike again and the game got real. Her partner, Asian Mike, would be picked up for dealing. But worse, Margie Pitka would be murdered. Information about the murder of Tracy Bauer's peekaboo friend and Black Long's girlfriend, Margie Pitka, was picked up on federal wiretaps on Suntran's phone. In a fact pattern we would see in the investigation of the jungle murders a year later, federal investigators in this case also turned to their jungle snitches to find out what happened when Pitka was murdered. Here's Assistant United States Attorney Vince Lombardi describing what happened in Black Long's sentencing memorandum. On March 14, 2015, agents learned a female who was in a tent near the jungle was the victim of a homicide. FBI Task Force Officer Brandon James called CW Number 6 regarding the murder. CW Number 6 agreed to make calls to people who live or hang out in the jungle to find out if they knew anything. Approximately one hour later, CW Number 6 called James back and stated he talked to others who told him that Black Long provided a gun to a man named Dong who shot the female in the tent. Phone intercepts of Sun Tran later that night contained further chatter about Dung shooting a girl in Black Long's territory. So in March, a month before the feds went and raided all these folks attached to the Tran DTO, there had been a murder up in the jungle. As it turned out, all of these folks connected to that killing of Margaret Pitka they were all talking on phones that were being listened to by the government. They'd all, as part of the wiretap that had been set up to get at the Tran organization, they were able to listen in on these guys describing what had happened, being pretty freaked out by it, all that stuff. There were a bunch of wiretaps that were done. On the, the feds weren't the only ones freaking out. So were Tracy Bauer and Black Long. Not wanting to blow their cover on the bigger Tran DTO sting, the feds referred the case over to Seattle police, who eventually picked up Black Long for questioning, four days after Pitka's murder. Black Long Trong, who was one of these guys who was picked up in the sweep, also gives a statement to cops about this murder. Do you know what he told police? So I know what the police say he told police. Fair enough. And uh, let me just read it to you straight from a search warrant. And it says, uh, Trong told detectives that he was with Pitka, Shorty, and White Boy in the tent on the morning of the shooting. Trong said a masked male walked up to the tent and shot Pitka twice. Trong said that he recognized him as Jung, a Vietnamese man who'd been hanging out around the jungle for the past week. Trong said Jung said something similar to, I kill her or I will kill her, and then left. Trong said that Jung had two missing fingers. Trong denied knowing why the shooting occurred.
While federal authorities would later argue that Blacklong's connection to this murder would justify a sentencing enhancement, the Seattle police apparently found his story sufficiently credible to warrant charging Dung, or Jung as Levi pronounces it, with the murder of Margie Pitka. Blacklong Trong would not be charged. Instead, he would go to ground. After Margie was killed, Long and them all came over to my camp, my tent, and they never left. That is until the FBI brought the hammer down on the Tran DTO some four weeks later, setting in motion the next domino in our case. Somebody somewhere will return right after this break. When the feds executed their 23-person indictment in April 2015 that picked up Black Long and Sun Tran, they created a power vacuum in the jungle. They also created a major new business opportunity. Effectively getting the feds to do his dirty work for him, CW number six, who had flipped on Tran after being arrested, had opened up the real estate for the next proprietors. And one of those persons who was willing to step into that void had conveniently operated out of there before. A Vietnamese drug dealer named Fat Nguyen, the man who, a year later, would be the target of the robbery in the caves. The Tran DTO was a big deal operation. Like, they were moving a lot of drugs. They were selling to a lot of people who really didn't need to be using drugs. These operations create chaos, and then the system reorders itself. But... They've done this a lot of different times in a lot of different ways, and the same thing always happens afterwards. They always, there's always somebody there to take the place. Once Fat decided to reopen the caves under new management, the first thing Fat would need was a reliable and trustworthy number two. And so Fat came and got me, and we went to the cave. I ended up selling Monte Carlo and bought some drugs and a big tent and another little car, and we started up. And so you started the business with Fat. It's like your brainchild? Uh, first it was, yeah, I, I was with Mike, and then Fat came and got me, and he actually took me home to his parents. Physically abused in her last two relationships, Tracy found in Fat not only a business partner, but also a lover, if not at first. I thought he was a jerk, and I, I left him, went back to the jungle on the bus. He'd come and get me. We go back home again, and he says, well, if you're not going to leave, we might as well start up my old jungle. So we had $47 and started up the cave. And you just picked that spot out yeah. of... That's where he had been before, and that's um, Tam was there before, and he'd gone to jail, and Fat wanted to get in there and take it back. He didn't want to be over where I was at. I was sharing the, my side with White Boy, and, um, and Long was there, and um, that's when they, there was uh, 26 people got arrested and went to jail, and... Long stayed there until they came and got him. Was he was my, part of that, that sweep? Yeah. Back in 2014? Yeah, and that's when Margie was killed as well. When the feds wiped out Suntran's DTO in 2015, out went Black Long and another jungle distributor named Tam. It was time to move up, and Tracy and Fats stepped into the literal and metaphysical void that was the caves. Tucked up under the elevated portions of I-5 leading into the city, with the deafening sound of cars and trucks overhead, the caves were not exactly Shangri-La, but as a base for drug operations, they were practically perfect. Although they did need a little sprucing up to start. 
When we went up there, we picked up over 200 bags of garbage, and the business down below let us put it in the dumpster, so all the garbage was picked up. It was clean. We didn't let anybody stay up by us, only a couple people. We couldn't have, you know, people coming in there that were thieves, you know, and the cops were going to chase them in there or anybody that was going to cause attention. We couldn't have that up there next to us, too risky, too dangerous. So we only let our workers stay up there and maybe like a few key people, like our, our key boosters that would bring us our food or our supplies. You went through the cycles of all small businesses, where you big time, bad times. Talk yeah. a little bit about the history. Well, at first it was basically just fat working until he kind of got to know me a little more and more, a little more comfortable with me. He knew I was working with Long and I'd worked with Mike and I'd proven myself to be able, you know, to do it and, and accept it with these other junglemen, Vietnamese junglemen, that I could do it. And it really picked up pretty fast. Better pricing, better location. It was, it was a nice location. It was one that was covered area, so you didn't get rained on. And in the summer, it was shady, so it wasn't too hot. We were able to have a big fire pit so people could gather around it and sit. You can't really have that at the other camps. Fat installed a huge stereo system. They could hear it all the way down past the Jack in the Box at night on 4th. You know, it was, it was fun. People could go up there and, you know, In fact, Tracy and Fat made the cave so inviting that drug dealers from other parts of the jungle began hanging out in their encampment. It's basic marketing, you know, provide the ambiance, provide a good product. A lot of the other jungle men would, would come over and take a few days off and to like hide and get away, and sometimes from their women or just the customers, but they'd come over and we'd have tents for them as well. And they'd come over and just get high without, they wouldn't be selling, they'd just be enjoying them themselves. and. It was nice. It was like definitely a vacation spot. They felt, a lot of them would say that that was like a little resort. And was the customer base people living down in the jungle, or were you seeing people coming in from the city? A lot, a lot of them like? coming off the street. People that lived there, a lot of them knew Fat from the past, and as soon as they heard that he was up there, they came back. You know, Fat serves Fat. How did you generate so much revenue from the customers? Fat was going to keep it controlled and regulated, and you could not bring outside dope in there. You could only use, get his dope. And beyond location, ambience, better pricing, and territorial control, Fat and Tracy's drug operation had other hallmarks of successful small businesses, including market-tested product diversification. And were you guys mainly selling black, or what? What was sort of crack, clear, and Black. At first it was just cracked just for the first couple of days, and then we got into the black because it's something people need every day. It's like clockwork. They're really a, a dedicated customer. You know you're going to see them every day and about the same time. Crack isn't always every day. Sometimes it's just the weekend or just the payday. or depends on how bad And of course, what small business can't be more successful by adding a little sex to the marketing and sales referral program? A couple of key people that would, would help bring in people that would be spending, like a, a popular girl, you know. She brought in a lot of customers. It was fun. People could go up there and, you know, dancing, or some of them would get a girl, you know, and, and go off. We had a couple of little tents set up for them for... Hookups. <laughs> you know, yeah. We didn't sell any women that was all on their own to, to come across, you know, or hook up. I had a, a walk-up window, and there's a big expression, next... I'd have six customers for the black and clear to the crack table. 
six to one. So my door, my line was nonstop. Of course, anyone who's ever run a business also knows this undeniable truth. You can't make the big money selling one by one at retail. The big money only comes when you go wholesale, selling to other businesses. The more quantity you sell, you know, the better prices you get. So we were supplying all the other jungles. They were coming and buying it from us. So just me alone in, in tens and twenties and grams was 10 ounces. But then I would sell probably that again, just in straight balls to the other junglemen. So roughly safe to say 5,000 a day, I um, think, more? No, towards the end it was almost 30. 30,000 a day that was getting moved through just your operation. Yes. But calling the cave's operations just a business would be selling it short. So how do you describe the jungle? Well, to me, it reminded me a lot of the, the reservation. It's a small community, poor community, one that survives with each other. I never really liked all the buildings and all this, you know, the freeways, traffic, big buildings. I, I was, you know, country, I, I liked the trees. In the jungle, there was a few trees, and we didn't see the freeway because it was above us. You go down the campsites, and you know everybody, and you know their addiction. You don't judge each other for it. You accept it, and you help each other out. Did everybody know that when Fat was gone, you were running the show? Yeah. Were you the queen of the camp? Yes. Fat was my king, and I was his queen. It was our camp. And at this point, I have to pause again at the incongruity of the world we were peeking into. These encampments that ring the south end of Seattle are without exception desolate and depressing environments. But here was this so-called little resort tucked up under the freeway with its own king and queen, moving $30,000 in top-line revenue and providing a home to so many lost souls. But let's be honest, while this operation had all the markers of a successful family business, all wasn't well just below the veneer. For one, the management was using the product and cutting into the margins. And so during this time you're selling, you're also using? Yes, I'm a smoker. I put a stone out thinking it's a $10 stone and it's really a $30 stone. I want to buy that for 10 And so I knew if, if I actually had me sell it, he didn't care if he made money or not that day because I wasn't going to make it. Fat may have not been completely altruistic in his motives. Even if Tracy smoked the profits one day, she was the one who kept the doors open 24-7 for business. But you don't go to sleep at the same time. You stay awake in case authorities come in, you got to get woken up, or if your tent catches on fire, you can get out in time. You know, getting robbed, or just people are always trying to wake you up. They want their dope. You can't sleep. You know, they're not going to let you sleep. So you... Addicted to drugs and suffering from all sorts of PTSD, Tracy would be enslaved by the success of the drug venture. And you had been up in the caves for a couple of years. Yeah. You weren't allowed to leave. Yeah, I didn't leave for a couple of years. When you leave, you have all these electronics and phones and computers and just all the supplies in your tent, food and everything. And you pay someone some dope to watch your stuff. So basically you don't leave. Pat was staying at a different location, so he was the one who was always leaving. You had to stay and mind the store, and he would go leave and come back? Yeah, you know, re-up or go get supplies or go visit his parents or 
He actually had a, a different location, a safer location other than our camp there at that time. So he'd only come in to check up on me. He wasn't there working. That was up to me and the other guys. Not only did Tracy have to watch their stuff, she had to watch their backs. With big money came big problems. And the other junglemen who were enjoying themselves up at Fat's little resort were taking notice of the weight being moved in the caves. And it didn't help that the city of Seattle had decided that one of the solutions to their homeless problem was to shut down the parts of the jungle that were more visible to the public, smushing everyone together. Before you had your spot, and that was your jungle, and everyone kind of respected that and stayed in their own. You know, they had their side, we had our side, another person had the cave. But as they're closing these down, people are having to regroup into new spots and like share, like for a while, there's five people up on Dearborn that were all selling, so it's a little harder. That lead to confrontations between groups? Yeah. And what does that look like? Physical to the, to the wallet, you know? <laughs> There's a few times, so I'm not going to say who, but there's, they'd come up and they'd be shooting. Nothing fatal, but a sting, you know, warning. A sting or a warning? Until one night in January 2016, when all hell broke loose, while the mayor was giving a major speech on homelessness. Next time on Somebody Somewhere. Fat and Win is not Pablo Escobar. Tracy and Fat are not running a Fortune 500 company. I talked to you before about yeah. doing that wire thing too. Yeah. He's down with it too. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, we're ready. There's the confession. What else do you need to know? He confessed. Oh, well, there's a video. Of course, they confessed. It's like, it's not that easy. It's not cut and dry. And the only appropriate, just verdict for you to return in light of the evidence is guilty. Life's a foolish game Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change Turn the ship another way Feel it in the dark Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media in association with Warner Media. This podcast is created, written, and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Dayton Cole and Pat Kicklighter at Resonate Recordings. Editorial guidance provided by Mitch Gelman and legal services provided by Stuart Pearson. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. If you like this podcast, the best thing you can do to support us is to write a brief review on iTunes and share us on social media. You'd be surprised how these reviews can make or break an independent podcast like ours. Thank you for listening. 